Welcome to the HR Lounge. Sit back and listen in as Diane and I interview HR professionals from all walks in life. We'll be exploring all things HR related. You know the ones, those deep and sometimes uncomfortable conversations that should take place, but unfortunately never really happen. Enjoy your time with us in the HR Lounge. Hello, 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 and welcome to the HR Lounge. Our guest today is from across the pond. We have a special guest, and his name is Keith L. Jenkins, and he's the president of the Oniru Group and Devani Holdings Limited. Welcome, Keith. Thank you for joining us. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Right, so with the introductions, my colleague, Diane, doesn't know you, but I got introduced to you by my brother who lives in America and you know very well. This will be the first time that really Diane and I has had a chance to actually speak to you, but I've spoken to you before. Diane, is there anything that you'd like to add? Well, hi, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Um, it's nice to speak to somebody from another country. So you being American and your point of view of the way things are will really help encourage our listeners to think of, you know, what benefits that you have as um, a HR individual in America that could help them going forward. So I'll kick off with the first question. Keith, could you tell us about your HR career journey and the pathway you took into the role currently holding as president of the Oniru Group and Devani Holdings Limited? Certainly. Um, I started in HR in 1990. Uh, My mother thought I would be a good HR professional. And uh, my mother's uh, best friend at that time was like an assistant uh, vice president uh, of uh, the Dayton VA Medical Center. So VA is Veterans Affairs uh, Medical Center. It's a federal government facility. And she she introduced me to HR. And I was there about seven years and I really loved it. And then I, I wanted to keep learning more. And so I you know, left there and went to a company called Reynolds and Reynolds. And Reynolds and Reynolds, they are, or at least they were, the number one uh, company in the United States for providing hardware and software solutions for auto dealerships. Then I worked there and then I found my my wonderful mentor. Uh, I I left there after about three years because I really wanted to learn even more. I moved jobs to learn. So I wanted to really learn the, you know, cutting edge techniques and applications of, you know, HR type work. I met Chandra Atikin a wonderful lady that changed my career where she she saw something in me and placed me in positions where I could just learn the most. So I learned all about benefits administration from consultants. I learned compensation administration from consultants. I learned health and safety, occupational health and safety in a manufacturing environment. I learned uh, how to build learning and development curriculum. I learned employee relations. That company I worked for, they actually had five locations in the United States and they had 10 locations internationally. And so I got a really great exposure. Like I would create policy for these different countries Mm -hmm. as well as learn everything, you know, in the U.S. She really broadened me. She sent me to school. 
she just really just changed my whole career. And we were doing cutting edge things back in the year 2000, you know. HR professionals always say, you know, I want to be strategic, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, what does it mean to be strategic? And I found that a lot of HR professionals, you know, wanting to be at the table to, to work on decisions with the, uh, or the top leaders or the C-suite, we have to, we have to find how our techniques, how our practice as HR professionals affects the bottom line, affects our objectives, and when we're able to operationalize uh, and not be as transactional where you can see the difference. So it's, it's that talent piece is really a big thing because when they see that you can understand and evaluate talent and apply talent, well, you know, that's what a, any leader's responsibility is to apply that talent to help, to help that organization meet their objectives. So I was just really, you know, getting into how to operationalize. The other thing that I found that in, uh, with HR professionals, everyone acted like they knew about finance. And they, because this is war against, you know, HR and finance is always a, a, a push and pull there in many cases. And so I decided to become a financial advisor with uh, Merrill Lynch. Um, that's a very large brokerage firm here. And, um, you know, I had my Series 7 license, Series 66, Ohio insurance license, your first module of the Certified Financial Planners. I wanted to make sure I really got in-depth, had a great understanding of finance. So I did that for a while just to broaden my, my business acumen and to kind of separate me from other HR professionals that would always think they knew about finance. Because I realized I really want to know what it is so that when I'm working with finance professionals, I can speak their language. And instead of it being that push-pull, they can see that, you know, I'm competent in their area and let's work together, right? Then the Great Recession hit in 2008 and had a very difficult time finding work and really struggled for about a year and a half. And so I started a business and I worked three, four jobs trying to make it. It was really hard. And then a good friend of mine connected me with, after about 18 months of that, connected me with Kettering Health, uh, which is a, you know, a large healthcare system in the Dayton, Ohio area. And I started there uh, working in 2010, stayed there till 2019, started my consultancy in HR and they were my client and uh, building my business. And then They've had some changes happen in there and they've asked me to come back and do some work for them. I don't think I can get away from them. Uh, we're just we're just family. We're just going to keep working. So that's where I am today. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, it's really interesting journey you've had and and career pathway within the HR arena. Yeah, it'd be, it's quite interesting. So how do you think all that you've done has shaped you? and influenced your, the way that you do HR practices? Because, I mean, obviously, one of the things you said was that you went off and did finance. So all these experiences, how has that shaped your, the, the way that you um, do your HR practice now? Well, what it's done, it's actually my philosophy has changed. So when I first started in HR in 1990, it was not called HR. <laughs> personnel. That's right. <laughs> it was called personnel <laughs> management. And for some reason, I I always hated that name. I don't know why I said I I was so happy around 1992 is when they changed to human resources. I was so happy. I was like, man, I'm glad I don't want to be called personnel anymore. But as I started to think about it, what do those names mean? 
personnel is like, that's the department that tells you about people. Human resources is saying, how do we use people to, to reach our mission? Now, there are other somewhat progressive healthcare HR offices, departments out west in California, where they don't call it human resources. And they've done that for about maybe three or four years. They call it human performance. And so, but human performance says, we're gonna measure how effective people help us reach our objective. I'm moving to what I call human excellence. How do we improve people to meet our, our mission? Not use people. You're changing the narrative. See, we use, <laughs> yes. How do we invest in people so that they are a part of what we do and we care about their development? And then we take that development uh, and we operationalize it because that's something I'm really into, you know, trying to operationalize um, our, our techniques and applications and strategies. Mm. So I can give you a quick example. What I, what I mean by like um, operationalize, so we all are interested in employee engagement. So the outcome, the desired outcome for employee engagement is for us, for an organization, to work with an employee to get them to share their discretionary effort with us. So discretionary effort is the effort that they go above and beyond. It's like discretionary income. You have discretionary income. That's the income that you could use doing anything you want. We want to take that discretionary effort. You could do other things, but you love doing what we have you doing. That's really the point of employee engagement is to, to get to that point where, you, where people become more productive. Yeah. Voluntarily. Yeah. yeah. With, with their own volition. Yeah. Right. And so when we were trying to affect employee engagement, there are all, there's probably a million different things you can do, you know, to try to increase employee engagement. But what I found, I started to study into how can I affect it by pulling a lever. And this is what I find that a lot of my colleagues don't get, that if you want something to change in employee engagement, there are levers. And when you invest in those levers mm. properly, you will get a desired outcome. So number one, you got to have a foundation. Let's say I have to take it in healthcare, if you don't mind, a healthcare mm. um, scenario where uh, staffing, filling jobs in a healthcare uh, because healthcare workers, it's 24-7, 365. It never closes. Mm. So when you're not staffed properly, people can work themselves to death. And if people are, if, if you don't, if you're too lean, then people feel guilty when they take off because they know their coworkers are, mm. are inundated with work. Or they feel guilty in just taking time off because they know it's going to hurt the operation. So you always struggle with engagement when you don't manage staffing properly and filling enough positions and, and maintaining that balance because healthcare is a very low margin business in the United States. Mm -hmm. They're happy to make four cents on a dollar, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, that's why finance and, 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 and healthcare is so important because mm -hmm. if you don't manage it, you just go out of business. Yeah. 
So the, the, the next thing is if you have great staffing, then you have to have equitable employee relations. So we have to have an employee relations, a conduct and discipline practice that employees view as fair and equitable. Yeah. Meaning, okay. meaning that the people that don't do their job well, they get punished. They don't just get to hang around and everyone gets the same kind of award for different levels of effectiveness. Because see, you'll take the morale from your good workers when they see not as good workers getting the same rewards as they're getting. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. When you have those two foundations set, now when you start to do the extras, right? The extras may be in compensation, maybe in uh, paid leave, or when you start adding bonuses, when you start adding uh, employee appreciation or employee advocacy councils to make sure that everyone's being heard and communicated with and know what the goals are and, and you have a, an accurate performance management system. Mm. When, one that where we're just not checking off, you're exceptional just so we can get it done. Mm. It actually yeah. helps and develops an individual. And that's a whole nother story there because, you know, in my ideology is that the performance cycle is when I get to the end of that performance cycle, that's a celebration. Mm. I always want my staff, you're not dreading your performance annual performance review because I do it all. I have quarterly check-ins. If something goes wrong, I'm talking to you so that when we get to that check-in, it's corrected. Because the performance cycle isn't a way to say, yep, you were doing this good and you weren't doing that. No, it's it's professional development is really the performance cycle. Mm. What I find in the UK is that performance management is used mm. to get mm. people out. Yeah. Not to develop, which is, which is a real shame because obviously what you're saying is, is that you, know, you make sure you, you are going through the performance management process you know, in a period of period of time. So once you get to the end, you both know where the person is. So you then go to another stage of hopefully getting them to another you know, senior position, you know, for me. But here, quite disappointing to see a lot of organisations just use it as a way to oust people out. Yeah. It seems to be quite negative in some areas. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. They, they manage people out. Performance management is a lovely buzzword, but the true meaning and effectiveness of it is not actually outlined or utilised to its maximum. How you've actually explained it, Keith, it's, it's like got me nodding. It's like, yep, 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 yep. That's what we believe, Diane and I, wholeheartedly. That's how you engage, motivate, upskill, inspire and progress you know, not only for the organisation, but for the individuals that the workforce, mm. because the workforce are the organisation. And I still use it if someone's not performing. So let's say I'm working with that person and they don't correct. What has happened is that I've built a relationship and a rapport with them because I've been transparent about their performance. So when I get to that point, I can say, I've done this in the past where, hey, you know, we've talked about this the last three times, it's not changing. So we're gonna have to make a change here. And I've, when I've done that, people leave quietly. 
they leave quietly because they know that I gave them an opportunity to correct, self-correct, and I was fair. See that thing about equity, it's, it's, an, it's a word, but when you actually have to do it, it can be very difficult in an organization because sometimes our superiors have agendas that could clash with that equity yeah. or ability to, or someone's, you need to discipline someone, but yet their parent is, is connected with the C-suite. So it's easy to say it, but hard to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, what you've just said and outlined there, Keith, leads really well onto me asking you, what's been the most challenging time during your career working for an organization and how did you overcome it? Yeah, um, one of the most challenging really was when I was at Kettering Health, director of human resources for uh, the way that it's set up, it's a, a system of um, nine or so hospitals. Right now, they have nine hospitals, 14,000 employees, 150 locations. They do about $2 billion a year. Um, the most challenging thing is when I was, the system I was in, the hospital was mainly the physician base were uh, doctors of osteopathic medicine, so they were DOs. In the, in the US, we have MDs and DOs, medical doctors and doctors of osteopathy. Mm. Many, many more, three times more MDs than there are DOs. Mm. And so DOs have more of a philosophy of mind, body, spirit. They believe in if the body is aligned appropriately, it will heal naturally. So they try not to medicate as much with prescription drugs, even though they, they do use them. Um, but they try, at least the, the philosophy of that approach is to work more with the body so that the body can heal itself as much as possible. And then we add other things. Um, and so in working in that facility, it was the most diverse culturally, meaning that there were um, many diverse people that were staff and very few diverse people in leadership. So you're going to have, and you know, in America, we have a problem here. You know, COVID is a virus, right? Or the coronavirus, but we have a racial bias virus in the United States. Yes. Yes. So do we. And so do we. a lot of folks are infected. And so it makes it very difficult to manage relationships. The, so I had so many different cultures clashing. So we had... This particular uh, facility was was a, was an a, acquired by Kettering, so it was owned and, and ran with other leadership that we took over. So you still had many many employees with that culture. Then you applied Kettering culture, and then Kettering is owned by a church, the Seventh Day Adventist Church. You had Adventist culture coming in. Then you had Black culture there because you had many many employees were African American. And then you had um, uh, the DO culture on top of that. And then you just have this matrix organization where you have these other, the corporate office, you know, pushing you and pulling you one way or another. And so managing all the relationships and all the leaders, and you have three bosses that are in different places and with, when they have different agendas mm. and they're all pulling you one place to another. And the way that I dealt with that 
is through performance. To me, digging in, going all in, I want to do things that have never been done before that are needed. I want to go to that next level, not because I'm so engaged on promoting myself. I want to get to that next level for the employee. Their experience means something to me. That patient means something to me. I want the absolute best, and I'm going to apply all of my intellectual power to come up with strategies, to build relationships, to create allies. And that's something we don't teach a lot in leadership development. Mm -hmm. You have to learn how to make Mm -hmm. allies. There are people that don't like you, and there are people that you don't like. But that doesn't mean they can't be an ally. You may need them, and they may need you. How do you manage that relationship? Everyone's not going to be your friend. And you can't, the, the organization is not paying me, right, to have a grudge with someone else. They're paying me to get along so that we create a, a particular outcome. I'm getting paid for an outcome. So at that juncture, one of our competitors that was only like two miles away, they closed. And we got all of their patients. We were, our census was way high. Everyone's working as hard as they can around the clock trying to manage all of this additional patient overload. And by us all galvanizing together, we were able to create. And I, and I believe from having a good staffing model, I had a very equitable employee relations um, practice that helped me and my boss, who was the president of that, we could work together and then we work on people to believe in people, we, we communicate, we share our strategies, we show you how you make an impact, and then we show you the result we want. And then you can trust us, we have integrity, we keep our word. And when we did our employee engagement survey during that time period to the advisory board, they're out of Washington, DC, we ranked in the 90th percentile in employee engagement at one of the hardest times because we had that foundation set and then we added that other piece and got even deeper on the other pieces. So to me, that was the most challenging and that's how we overcame it. Yeah, very impressive. Most rewarding, yeah. Equity, it's a short word, but it, it has speaks volumes. And when you see emotion, you know, and you know, Keith, you are speaking Diane and I's language because we, what we do in Synergize Solutions, that's why it's called Synergize Solutions. It's about synergy. It's about engaging. It's about motivating, upskilling. And it's, you know, it's about putting people on the right track and mm. supporting them along their journey. You know, so, yeah, we totally get what what you're saying. And, and thank you for sharing that with us. I will concur because I was actually going to say exactly the same thing. Was, you were speaking and I could see so much synergy uh, to our organisation, Synergize Solutions, and what you're saying because we believe in those things and we, we understand how important it is. So, um, it, you know, it was great to hear. So going on to our next question, um, we're asking about what you feel are the, the good characteristics of a, a leader or manager and and probably just add to that how, how does that manifest what does it look like yeah um when you think about leadership um the first things that first thing that comes to me 
you know, casting a vision um, that people can grab onto. You have to have, you have to be working towards something. Many times we get into jobs and they just tell you what the job is and you don't even understand how it fits into how the product is made or what the outcome is, you know, and how do you measure it? So I want to cast a vision. I want to have metrics to measure um, how well we're meeting those goals. And then when I can have that, I want to create a system of accountability. So when I'm placing people in their roles, I believe that a manager or leader's role is to be the catalyst. And this is not just me saying, this is Marcus Buckingham. I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, he wrote the book, First Break All the Rules, a very good book. He, he talks a lot of, about that, being the catalyst between a business objective and talent within an individual. So being able to have an eye for putting people in the right spots where they can excel. And so I've had some of my colleagues kind of get on my case because if I have a person and, and they're not performing something in that role that I need them to, I, I really look at to see, do they really have the ability to do it at the level I, I need it done? Because sometimes people aren't an exact fit for the, the job description. Sometimes they don't meet every single one of those tasks at the same talent level. If it's not all the way there, I won't make them do it because if it's not a forte for them, I want, I want them to work where they excel. What, work with their strengths. Yes. So a leader, I'm casting a vision. I'm setting goals. Then I'm setting measures to measure our progress to reach those goals. Then I'm taking a very close look at the talent and skill of individuals that I have in the particular roles that I need them to be in to help us reach those goals. Then I have a value system. So here at uh, Nero Group, we say our, our value system is called PEACE, P-E-A-C-E. -E. Um, and it's that we're proactive, we're energetic, we're adaptable, we're collaborative, and we're ethical. So when I meet with my team, I remind them that value system. And then I give them examples of how they've demonstrated it in their actual job to reinforce their behavior. Then I keep my promises. They can depend on me. If I say I'm going to do something, I do it. If I can't do something, I'll tell you. If you don't do something right to the place where it bothers me, I'll say something to you. But I won't, if it's not a punishment in me telling you, we have to have thick enough skin to be corrected. I give them an ability to correct me. If I'm off track, I need you to tell me mm. and I don't get upset with you if you can do it respectfully. Now I don't take it any kind of way, mm. but if you can respectfully communicate to me where I need to do something different and then I'll ask them, what, what can I, what do you want me to stop doing as your leader? Mm. What do you want me to continue doing? Mm. And what do you want me to start doing? And I found that when I do that, uh, like, uh, Christine, who set up the meeting with us today, uh, you know, she would say to me, um, well, I need you to tell me, you know, when you're changing things on your calendar. That's something that I can do. When I'm able to do that, it builds trust. The other thing I like to see in a leader is someone that will share details. I've worked with a lot of leaders that don't like to communicate. They like to leave employees in the dark because they feel like knowledge is power. So if they can ma manage that 
knowledge and they can have a certain power over. And I just find the opposite to be more empowering when I trust you with this information. Now there's a caveat with that. And I tell folks, if I'm gonna trust you with it, if you leak it, there's gonna be, you know, repercussions and consequences. <laughs> so I'll share it with you, but if you if you leak it, we're gonna have big problems. Because because I'm I'm not gonna change my organization because you can't keep your mouth shut. Mm. Means that you won't be here. Okay. And I and you have to hold people accountable. This isn't where I just let people do whatever they want to do. I'm very flexible, but I do hold people accountable. Mm. And I do try to create an environment. Yeah. Yeah. I cr I try to create an environment where people become self-directed. Mm. Yeah. And I've gotten criticism for that. Yeah. Because they want me to sit and tell them every single thing to do. I'm not doing it. Mm. I'm going to give you all the tools. I'm going to be available to help guide you and lead you, but I need you to think. And if you can't think, then you have to kind of go somewhere else yeah. because I need people that can think. And I'm sorry about that, but that's just the way it is, you know. So that's when I look at leadership. To me, that's leadership to me. Yeah. 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 No, that, that, that's fantastic. And, and as you as you were speaking, Keith, thank you so much. And, you know, thank you for the giggle, because that bit it was like, yeah, no, if, if individuals aren't performing and you're speaking our language with such passion, because that's how we see leadership. We see it as guided discovery. But also, as you were speaking, I it reminded me of my first line manager who gave me my first job in the healthcare arena. And um, I came from Ernst & Young, so I came from a totally different environment. And I basically asked her, why did I get the job over other people? And she said, Jacqueline, I recruit for attitude and train for skill. Mm. And I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. And that is the ethos that is embedded in me as a leader with Diane as well, what we do in our business the foundation of our business is integrity with all of the skills and competencies that we bring to the table and synergize. And, and that really leads on to the next question about passion. So what are you passionate about currently and what keeps you striving to improve your working environment, your business and your client relationships? Uh, my passion comes around. I actually care about people. And I know that sounds simple. I find a lot of HR professionals are um, attracted to the trappings of human resources work, meaning um, you are you have access to all data. You know everything about every person. You know all the sensitive data. You know, I used to say to people, you know, I know how much they make. I know where they live. I know where, who their kids are and how old their kids are. I know what doctor they go to. I know where they... They go to school. I know how much money you have in the bank. I know, I mean, in your retirement, I know how much, you know, what your benefits are. You know a lot of things about people. And I think some people kind of power trip because they have, they want access to all of that information. The other thing is that they become enamored with uh, the ability to give people employment and to have an understanding of how the pieces are moving and the politics and 
But really, you know, those are things that um, are there. Those things do not motivate me. For some reason, by God's grace, I just thank God for it. That, like, I was giving a, a presentation around uh, the book, uh, The Ideal Team Player by Patrick Lencioni. It's a wonderful book. And it says that the ideal team player has three virtues. They're humble, they're hungry, and they have people smarts. And when you're lacking one of those virtues, they have kind of a name for you. And so that's what kind of makes it kind of fun and funny. Um, but I was doing a presentation to about maybe eight or, or so uh, leaders, and they were just looking in the screen. And I had to kind of, hey, I'm not telling you this because it's information. I'm telling you this because I need you to excel. I care about your development. I care about you as a person. I'll put my job on the line to make sure someone's treated fairly and equitably. I'll stand up for what's right. If I have a person that's not being paid properly, I'm going to fight about it because I care about that person. And I'm not sure why I care so much about them, but it's just something that's in me that, that how you're treated, how you're valued is very important to me. If someone is mistreated, I cannot sleep. It sounds like, it sounds like you're talking about me and talking about Jacqueline, really. It really does. I'm listening to you and I'm just thinking, <laughs> these are, it's almost as if you've cited off stuff in my head. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, I think both of us really do believe that. One of the things you mentioned about was pay. Mm. I'm actually the, the founder of the Ethnicity Pay Gap campaign. Oh, wow. So, you know, okay. that subject is, mm. uh, is a big subject for me. And I yeah. totally get the fact that it is totally unacceptable to be paid unfairly. Yeah. And, uh, and through organisations, obviously, the fact of discrimination that, that goes on, it's unfair. And I'm, I, too, I, I get very annoyed and frustrated and I feel that I have to be the advocate, as does Jacqueline, to be able to put things right. Yeah. So I'd like to, to think about all that you're saying. Yes. So you have obviously had a, a, such a strong career. You, you, you've given of yourself. How have you helped um, others under you uh, to excel and you know that that term play it forward How, what does that look like to you yeah it's funny I'll, I'll just give you an illustration um, we worked um, with we created a, an employer resource group or affinity group at uh, Kettering Health and uh, one for black for professionals and one session we you know, had about maybe 20 people around the table and they asked each person, how did you come to Kettering Health? And six people said me. And I really enjoy evaluating talent. And I don't know, I think when you do it for 30 years, I can see talent in people. And if I can see it in you, it doesn't matter what you look like. If you have it, I try to place it in the right place. Many times in my prior role, they would send me people who were not doing well. They would send them to me for me to kind of get them on track and then send them back. I'd keep a person seven months. I'd work with them. I'd send them back and then they're, they're productive. So it's, it's about 
you know, it sounds so simple, but it takes effort to care. It takes a lot of effort to actually care. Because some leaders, you just don't have to do it. You can just say, I'll get another person. I don't do that. I'll say, I want to try everything I can to see if this person fits and find where they fit. Then if they can't, then that's fine. But I'm going to give it everything I have. That means I know what that person is like. One, one strategy that I, I employed at one point, because my employee engagement scores had slipped one time. And I'm like, how did it slip? What, what happened? And I couldn't, I still don't know to this day why it slipped. Um, but what I did to get it back to where it was, was I said, you know what? I'm going to find a project with my direct reports, all of them, that we can work together on. And then I'm going to take them to lunch outside of the office once a month to get to know them better. And I found that when I would take them to a really nice restaurant for lunch, because we go to nice restaurants for dinner, right? But when you go to a nice restaurant for lunch, it's very cozy and they're bringing all this wonderful food out. I found that they would start to tell me about not just their work struggles, I would understand what they were struggling with in life gave me a different perspective on how I could help them. And then when I would find that project, even my receptionist, I had a, I found a project that her and I could work together on. And I found that I learned a lot because it was something I didn't know about. She was was educating me quite a bit and then I could remove some obstacles that she had. And then when you take the time to, that's caring and that takes time to do that. Now, you know, when you're in those roles, you don't have a lot of time, but I made the time. And I really think that makes a difference. Um, in my role there, I would talk to any employee at any time. If an employee just came in, they didn't have to be on my calendar. I would stop what I was doing and I'll say, hey, look, I'll, I'll come on, tell me what's going on. And when you take time like that, you give to people, they give back to you. And when they give back, then I can help see where I can place them. And so that's kind of really how I approach that. Very good. Mm, that's, that's fantastic. It shows the passion, you know, and we always say that we're passionate about people. Tagline is, you know, helping individuals, teams and organizations to realize, unlock and release their potential to be the best that they can be. Thank you for sharing that. You've given us such <laughs> scrumptious nuggets to feast on. And it really tickles us. And I know that Diane and I are going to have some big conversations after this. But what I want to ask you, Keith, is what advice would you give to anyone who's looking to embark on a career in human resource management or development? Yeah, I, what I would, the first advice, I would really make sure that they understand the work. I meet people that have master's degrees in human resources management that do not work in the field. And many times they say, well, you know, I have, a, I have a master's in HR, but you know, you don't know HR until you're actually working and applying. Uh, when you have book knowledge, doesn't mean that you know how and have the judgment to manage politics. Uh, when you're an HR executive or a top leader, Man, politics, that's 50% of your job, depending on the organization. And most of them are like that. 
So when you don't have that feel for people and understanding, like the, you have this wonderful, the emotional intelligence, the EQ that, that you all work with, that is huge. So you, you need to make sure that you have good EQ. Uh, I would talk to prominent individuals that work in the field to kind of explain what is the work really like? Because it's not just, you know, book work. You need it. You need that knowledge. So you, it's not that you don't need it, but it doesn't help you keep your job as an HR professional at all. So to me, and then the other thing is, you know, how can you really be objective with yourself to know that you actually care about people? I went to a seminar where a guy, Steve Brown, he's the, um, there's a, a La Rosa's Pizza is a very large chain uh, here in Ohio. And uh, this guy is fantastic. Steve Brown is off the chain. He is, he is the HR professional's HR professional. He is awesome. And he's like, if you don't love people, get out of our, get out of our business. You got to love people. Uh, and you can't say, well, I'm a people person. You know, when you have people, well, I'm a pe no, you got to love people's problems. We help people with problems. They have issues. And many times it's kind of, it can be a thankless job. <laughs> yeah. I had a, a friend of mine that I worked with that after working with him for what, eight to 10 years, uh, helping him get promoted like three or four times. One time he said to me, I had finished my building and everything and my business is going. And he said to me, man, you know, this is really, I really didn't know what you did until I saw this building. And I helped this person get promoted three times. He didn't know what I did for him. Well, I didn't really know what kind of work you do. And so what happens is that we have this intangible um, intellectual property that we share and people apply and then it evaporates until the next issue. Um, you have to be able to deal with that, that you don't have, you don't have a finished product in your hand that you can show people and say, this is, this is HR. All you have are the people that you've helped. Yeah. And then they'll say, this person helped me get a job or this person, you know, resolve this situation or my presidents, the people that I worked for, they're your lifelong buddies because of what we did together. That's, that's, what you get is it's an intangible and not everybody handles that well. Yeah. yeah it's, it's never straightforward, is it, in terms of what we do? Mm -hmm. they, just, they, know, they know the end result, but they don't know all the efforts and hard work that went into that end result. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it, I suppose when you talk about the emotional intelligence, um, we've, we've moved on from just pure emotional intelligence in what we do, because, you know, um, Emotional intelligence is in everything that we do, but we are now using a multilateral and and um, approach, and that incorporates cultural intelligence as well as emotional resilience. Because if we look at where we've all travelled through individually as organisations and globally, it's been awful, and it still is awful because it's not settled, and we're not in in a new normal situation. So, being passionate about what you do and loving the unlovable. Um, as an HR professional is key and fundamental. You can't take it personal. Um, and I, you know, I just think that what you shared with us is, is so invaluable. It really, really is, you know, just to see 
a glimpse of what you're doing over there within your HR arena and how you apply things, you know, because we know that across the pond, things are done slightly different from over here. And also the, the terminology and the narrative and the, the true meaning. But we found true synergy with you, Keith, and having this conversation, you know. So thank you very much for taking the time to actually share your insights with us from across the pond. Yes, thank you very much. It was definitely insightful. And um, as I said, when you kept speaking, there was so much that uh, resonated with me in terms of your approach. And it, it, I suppose it, it also makes us recognise what we do as Food Justice Solutions is the right way forward. Because, you know, all that you're saying and doing just reinforces what we think is right and we're going to continue doing it and i hope you continue with all that you're doing as well so thank you very much thank you both very very much it's an honor and a pleasure like i said earlier and i really appreciate the time thank you for listening to the hr lounge we hope you find our podcast insightful Join us next time for more thoughtful discussion. And remember, you have the power to make a difference.